Hey guys, it's Lori here. Just letting you know that this episode is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Learn more at csbible.com. Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 83, take two, sexuality and shame. Welcome, yes, to that Hole in My Heart podcast where we talk about how the gospel is good news for everyone every day, including in the conversation today where we're talking about sexuality and shame. But I am your host, Lori Krieg, and I do have alongside me my favorite licensed therapist and Argyle expert, my husband, Matt Krieg. Hello. Hey, Matt. How you doing? Doing okay. Well, glad you're here. We also have another person we're glad to have with us, the most professional radio voice among us, and ever faithful, producer Steve. Hi guys, I'm glad Matt's here too. He's not. He's not been with us so much this last right. season, except for the these take two. These take uh, twos. This special summer series. I know. Yeah, it's been you great. Know what would get me to show up more? What? And take five. Take five candy. Wow. I'll get one next time. That's a good idea. <laughs> Guys, we are continuing our series called Take Two, where we're taking a second round at episodes we have aired before. So we're hitting up, we're grabbing some of our favorite episodes from the last four seasons before we launch season five this fall. Season five. Mm. Bananas. Incredible. Yeah. Well, guys, today we are talking, as Lori said earlier, about sexuality and shame with Dan Allender. And a little bit of forewarning here, if you have experienced trauma in your life or have a close relationship with someone who has, consider this your trigger warning. Mm. There is a lot of just real stuff that, that comes out in this podcast. So listen with caution. Yeah, and we chose this episode. Um, like, it's still, this episode's amazing. We just want to be honest that there's, we talk about sexual trauma, uh, not graphically, but it's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we chose this one because we got to go there. It's part of my history. Matt, I know you walk with a lot of clients who it's a part of their history. Steve, we've talked about your mm-hmm. story too. And so, what we love about Allender is he's kind of the guy, the trauma and faith guy. And we just appreciate how tenderly he engages this conversation. And uh, just a little more about Dr. Dan Allender. He's professor of counseling, psychology, and former president of the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology in Seattle, Washington. He's the co-founder of the Allender Center, a division of the school that uh, focuses on healing and training in the realms of sexual abuse and trauma. He travels and speaks extensively on sexual abuse recovery. Uh, He speaks about love and forgiveness, worship, and other related topics. Uh, Dan Allender is the author of 15 books, including The Wounded Heart, and he's co-author of God Loves Sex. All right, guys, let's dive in with our friend, Dr. Dan Allender. Let's just keep it going, brother. How was the gospel, which we flip around Tim Keller's beautiful description uh, in a less shamey way, according to Kurt Thompson, but the gospel, I'm more loved than I can imagine and more sinful than I believe. How was it first good news for you and how is it still? Well, I, my, my gospel um, experience began with my best friend, Tremper Longman III, when we were 13 years of age. Uh, and the story of how we met, uh, a little too long, but just to simply say that he introduced me to something called the Bible when I was 14. I'd never heard of the Bible. It was simply not a part of my family world, uh, any you know religion of any sort, let alone the Bible. So I had never heard of it. And really around the process of of hearing about the Bible. And he was a believer. He was from a Christian family. 
uh, it just struck me as absolute asinine. I, I was happy for him that he was happy, but uh, but I learned it. I learned the Romans Road. I learned, uh, you know, how to think about, you know, the four spiritual laws, uh, and all of that really had very little, shall we say, effect uh, on my career or my <laughs> occupation. But when uh, the Cleveland Mafia apparently put out a contract on small little satellite drug dealers like myself, um, kind of the gospel all of a sudden got real real at the thought of a drive-by shooting that could t- send me you know, into another world. Uh, and I just, I literally walking down the street thinking I could die any moment. And I just looked at God and just went, fine, fine. <laughs> uh, that was my version of asking Jesus into my heart. <laughs> Four letter word, but fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how is the gospel still good news for you? We know we don't just have one past tense testimony. How are you still reliant well, I, I think if if one were honest, uh, if I were to say, I think I've become a Christian several hundred times uh, <laughs> in the 40 some years since that moment. Uh, and, you know, if we're asked, you know, but would you have been in the presence of God if you had perished? I, the answer is yes. Yet I think that freedom to be able to say, you know, Jesus has come to mean more and more to me as I age and get closer to death. As I engage the suffering of other human beings, especially in the realm of of abuse, sexual abuse, there is so much injustice, so much heartache, so much rage, so many questions about the goodness of God. And I'm, I'm invited in lament uh, if we think about lament, as you were speaking about it, as also complaint psalms, mm-hmm. where there is this sense of of disorientation. Well, I'm invited to struggle with God. And in that, I have found him again and again, like in Lamentations 3, that his, his glory and blessing is new every day. So in that sense, I would say um, I, I'm more excited about the gospel than I was five years, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Hmm. All right. Well, let's keep going there. Um, I've, I've heard interviews with you. I've read some of your books. I follow your online presence and you are an expert in this field of sexual trauma and recovery. And I'm, I'm so grateful as an adult survivor of childhood sexual assault. And we've got another one in this room with Steve, you've shared your story. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you please help us understand the gravity? I've, I've heard you talk about this, of just how many people have been touched by the pain of sexual trauma. Well, let me first use the word expert. And that is, I, I, I'm sure Matt is an Argyle <laughs> um, aficionado. And I, I would say the more you know something, the more you know you don't know. Yeah. And I feel like I, I do have a lot of experience. It's been my work and career, my writing and thinking for a long, long time. But the more I engage human hearts with this, uh, I still want to say there's an infinite amount to learn about the human heart that we cannot comprehend until we ourselves grow more. And so in that sense, it's back to the gospel. Mm-hmm. As I'm more captured by the gospel, I actually get more aware of how much I need not only to be forgiven, but to learn about the world I'm in. But 
in answering your question, um, yes. I think the fact is, how long does it take, literally, to abuse a child? And I know one woman who was touched by her grandfather as she left his house, and probably it was three seconds that he put his hand on her breast. And it wasn't an accident, it was a clear molestation. And it lasted at least until we had the privilege of working together. Um, it had lasted about 35, 40 years, uh, affected her marriages, uh, affected her sense of self, affected her ability to even sleep and eat well. Uh, it was a dark shadow over her life, three freaking seconds. Now, again, there's a whole lot more to that than just those three, but no less than those three. So the return on investment for the kingdom of darkness is profound mm -hmm. with regard to the effect of abuse in terms of disintegrating some level of our faith, our ability to trust, our ability to dream and hope, and certainly our ability to receive and give delight and honor and pleasure to one another. So what I just put words to is, I think evil's design is to rupture faith and in many ways kill hope and to shame. Uh, love. And when it does, it really does take ascendancy and authority over the human spirit. Mm. What percent of people do you think have been affected by sexual assault trauma? Well, the best study I know um, is, is by a woman by the name of Diana E.H. Russell, who did a research project in like 1986. So we're talking many decades ago. And there's nothing, nothing comparable, literally done. And she followed about 955 women uh, and did interviews rather than paper and pencil tests. And what she found was uh, at the level of what could be called illegal, meaning it's a crime, she found one out of three women have a history of past abuse. But when you include one event, one event of what could be called visual sexual abuse, where a man publicly displays his genitalia to a woman or exhibitionism, it jumped to 52%. So if we begin to include things like you, uh, uh, your your father left pornography for you to find in the bathroom, um, your your uncle watched triple X rated pornography or just even soft porn uh, when you were 12 years of age. You know, as you begin to include pornography and other forms of visual, verbal sexual abuse, honestly, I mean, this may sound highly exaggerated, but I don't think it's humanly possible to grow up in the 20th and 21st century as a woman mm. and not be sexually violated. Right. And some yeah. of those are more small T traumas. But really what I just put words to is at least one out of every two women have a history of capital T trauma by the age of 18. And nothing has been done equal in research to that particular work for men, but at least the ones that are close to it would indicate about one out of every four men have a history of abuse. And frankly, I think that's underreported. Mm -hmm. You and you just alluded to this, this pornography, this first encounter. I just I, when I heard you interviewed somewhere, you talked about how every person's first encounter with pornography, you would categorize as some sort of trauma. How so? I would. Well, you know, except for the two boys walking across a field and there's a bunched up magazine they pick and, and look at. In one sense, there's no direct 
um, face or person doing the grooming. But if we think about the introduction in most occasions, and that's really about 78% of pornography introduction is by someone older and or more experienced. Uh, And that person is aroused to show you what they have found to be this great uh, treasure. And so the entry into involves a form of grooving, a, a setup, an arousal. Uh, and often the person showing you pornography is intending for you to be sexual in their presence and or sexual with them. So oftentimes there is uh, almost the use of pornography as a form of sex education to exploit the other person to have them involve themselves uh, with that perpetrator. So yeah, I would say the vast majority, uh, 75% or more, involves some element that's very similar to the grooming that's involved in all forms of sexual abuse. Mm. So I'm picturing like that moment and then the, the person who was essentially groomed and then traumatized by this first experience, there's shame that immediately descends. And it seems like shame always plays a role when sexuality is is not in this space of God's design. Why why are they so closely linked? Well, and I, I love Kurt Thompson and and his book is just a sweet, sweet gift to the kingdom of God. Uh, but to underline what what I think Kurt says, what I would say, and that is shame is a disposition that comes in many ways as a result of the fall. And that is we have a proclivity to experience a, a, a sense of something's wrong, not just I've done wrong, but something is deeply unwell within me. And it's hard to find a single word like I'm bad, not that I did bad. I am bad. But it's you, know, you almost have to add words like toxic, dangerous, dark, wicked, yeah. ugly. And when you have all those words then the sense of I've trusted somebody who's just made a fool of me, they've used me, there's shame in that. There's always a sense of powerlessness. I can't stop this person who's bigger than me from doing what they're doing. And so there's a shame in in literally not having some ability to manage and change my present future in a way that I wish. But the real deep, deep sense of shame, Lori, that comes is that my body was aroused. So you can't be touched, just your skin. You just can't have your skin touched, let alone primary and or secondary sexual body parts, let alone things like our hair or our buttocks or our leg. You can't be touched without some sensation. And that's what I mean by the word arousal, a sensation that even if I hate it, even if I'm terrified of it, my body experiences some degree of arousal. And this is really awful sentence. I I don't have a better word for it than this. But when we've got an abuser who knows really how to abuse, they're going to make sure your body felt arousal with regard to our primary or secondary sexual body parts. Mm. And that it's the darkest part of abuse that we were aroused in the midst of being violated. Mm. You often associate wisely contempt with shame. So again, I'm like envisioning what you're saying and it's horrific. And as someone who's experienced it, I get that. But then all of a sudden there's this anger, this contempt, this hatred that associates with this sphere. How and why? 
Well, I, I, I would love to think that through with regard to Romans uh, chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul says, it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And let me say it as clearly as I know how to say it. An abused person never repents for being aroused. They don't repent for having been abused. They don't repent for being a victim, let alone what they experienced in their body. But I know with regard to the abuse I suffered in many ways, my effort to resolve the unaddressed shame and contempt in my own life led to massive misuse of my body, massive misuse of drugs, alcohol, other human beings, stealing cars, causing uh, difficulties uh, for my teachers, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, I did more harm to myself in addressing the abuse than in some ways my abusers did to me. Mm. So I have to bear a new level of kindness if I'm going to get to that issue of both shame and contempt. But you have Paul's next phrase, and that is, why do you treat the kindness of God with contempt? I think contempt is our way to manage shame with a level of control that annihilates ourselves so that we don't feel, so we don't want, so we don't risk. So in that sense, it is really only another form of self-hatred that allows us to lessen the experience of of shame. So whether it's self-contempt, I'm such an ass, a fool, a jerk, or you're an idiot, uh, other-centered contempt, in either form, it's the same brick, uh, but directed in a very different direction that ultimately lessens our sense of shame. But in the long run, oh my goodness, it only intensifies it. So is the antidote then the kindness of God? Like, and I know it's probably not the one singular, but what's an antidote to that? Well, truth. I I mean, as difficult and simplistic as that must sound, um, I just finished a few days ago with my colleagues what we call a recovery week, where we took 15 women, uh, often we take 15 men, and we basically step into the stories of their past abuse. And I'm telling you, three or four of them were excellent therapists. Uh, two or three people were involved in significant ministries. So these are these are self-reflective, self-aware people. But when we come to shame, uh, our ability to interpret. Uh, our ability to see our, ourselves. It's like looking into a distorted carnival mirror. We just don't see the truth. So we need others to help us name our story, the particularities in our story, because often we skirt over stories of abuse with broad terms like, yeah, my father masturbated me or my father sexually abused me. And, and it's true But you haven't actually entered the story where shame congeals. And that's a very important sentence. Like, our shame is not abstract. It's in the particular moments. Like, in an event of 30 minutes of being abused, there won't be shame equal through that whole 30 minutes. But in that particular minute, two-minute period, that's where we're very reluctant to enter into what actually happened. Then if you add the fact that it's trauma— And in trauma, any form of trauma, our brains fragmented, uh, our ability to code language and therefore have something of a story-like memory with a beginning, middle, and an end, uh, it just isn't there. So when I say tell the truth, I I don't mean 
tell the truth, yes, I was sexually abused. I'm talking about will you enter the story knowing it's fragmented with somebody who can walk with you to hold that story even in its fragmentation with a larger sense of continuity. That is crucial. I mean, it's, I mean, kindness without truth ends up becoming ultimately quite self-absorptive. So what I'd say is truth and kindness, truth where you can enter your story more deeply than you have before. But in that, as shame shows itself and contempt rules, where kindness cuts through that, that, violence uh, and allows the heart to truly, in one sense, surrender to the presence of of the comfort of God. When we go back to the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And I've seen it, I've seen it literally thousands of times, people who enter the truth and allow their hearts to receive kindness. Um, I'm just telling you, that's the context for the Spirit of God to bring remarkable change. Well, as I'm envisioning that you're walking alongside someone moment, I'm like, okay, you know, there's, there is a sweetness and a preciousness to a a non-believer, someone who isn't a believer in God, of just getting the story out, period. But as I'm envisioning you talking with some of these women that you just walked with and inviting the spirit into that space, that's got to change, like bring it to the next times a thousand level. Like, how do you see God break through those moments more than just talk therapy could? Well, yeah, you're asking just a brilliant question. And it's also one where I just kind of go, well, (laughs) no. Uh, I, you know, to to be quite honest, I, I'm I'm more like you know I, I, I'm there at the birth of a new heart and a new sense of grief and anger, and again to hold those two together, a greater sense of grief opens the heart to comfort. But as you face the harm that has been done to you, there is something that rises with a sense of just. Um, It would be better for that man or woman to have a millstone wrapped around their neck and Mm. thrown into the deepest part of the ocean. When you hear the righteousness of Jesus in his anger against those who have caused a little one to stumble, you better know that we are maturing as our grief and our anger in one sense come to intersect at a new level of passion. And that that's just not something therapy can do, but therapy is a context, you know, in some ways, uh, like a doula, who's part of the birthing. But in that sense, I'm a part, not really a significant agent, because the Spirit of God is going to do things in the context of truth and kindness that actually don't seem to happen when there's only truth or only kindness. Hey, Matt, Steve. Uh Uh-huh. Yes? You want to hear something cool? Sure. What is it? So, we were in our real-life small group the other week, and Matt volunteered to read something from the Bible. Okay. Yeah, I read it, and do you know what happened? What? I got asked the question, what translation is that? Our friends loved it. Which one was it, Matt? (laughs) The CSB, Christian Standard Bible. (laughs) No kidding. The one that's been sponsoring the podcast, so you guys actually read it in real life. Yeah, we really like how it reads. We're so familiar with things like the NIV and the ESV and NLT, which we love. 
But the Bible can sadly become kind of like white noise to us. Yeah. I've really appreciated how the CSB is both familiar, but also fresh and new. Yeah. That is really cool, guys. It is. So if you guys listening want to shake up your usual reading routine with a high scholarship translation that is familiar yet new, hit up csbible.com to see all of what the Christian Standard Bible has to offer. So there's a kind of this scenario that I keep running into with, with my clients when they experience a trauma and then get to the point later in life where maybe they let someone in um, to to what was happening and they, they receive at some level this this idea that you need to forgive and forget. You need to to take what happened and leave it in the past. And and that phrase has done so much damage to to the clients because as you're expressing that this this rage, this new level of rage and kindness that somehow get get mixed in together is is an appropriate response. That they are supposed to feel that intense level of anger of, of what happened yet when we gloss it over with just forgive it's it's quenching that it's telling it okay just shove that down and the only response that i've seen from my clients is to say well i don't have needs i don't i don't have feelings i don't have emotions because they've been told they're kind of not allowed to oh i i, I so concur with you I, I i would use the phrase it's just bull the problem with the phrase thank you uh, it's, <laughs> The problem is the bullshit actually can grow things. Uh, yeah. And you know, but this phrase forgive and forget. Here's the dilemma. It's true. But also Romans 828 is true. That is, we are more than conquerors, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But when we use truth to deny truth, then in many ways, we're doing what evil does when it quotes scripture. Mm -hmm. So when we are to forgive, what we need to grasp at that moment is that if I don't address the harm I've done to myself, and and face the fact that indeed in the arousal and shame and my contempt that then carried on for five decades uh, with immense consequences that I need to engage his delight for me in spite of my failure. So when we understand what forgiveness holds for the shift of how we engage kindness with ourselves, then kindness for those who have done us harm becomes part of the wisdom of knowing how to address the invitation to others to come to the party. So, you know, when I say to people, look, forgiveness involves doing good and your abusers need good in the same way that those who have cancer do. So three treatment processes, radiation, chemotherapy and surgery, if we change the language, it's burning poisoning, cutting. So we forget that forgiveness is a force. It is a, I will take on the cancer in, in my own heart and the cancer in your heart to eventually invite you to a reality of what I've come to know to be good and true. And that is, there is delight for those who return to the party to receive the care uh, and forgiveness of God. So in that sense, I do believe in forgiveness as a very central work, but not initially not as the primary task that then resolves supposedly all the other issues that linger in the human heart. It's just not true. Mm. So good. 
Okay, so this is uh, Lori still working out some of her <laughs> trauma, but Matt and I are writing a book uh, now um, on our marriage and some of the, the trauma that resurfaced and really connected to my sexual orientation. And um, my, my trauma brain and my sexual orientation paved a path for me to look at exiting our marriage as like the most viable solution. So after our second daughter was born, this memory resurfaced and Matt, who I was like, no, he's not like other men. I choose him. I love him. I would, I'm heart connected to him. I want to be with him. This memory resurfaced when my second daughter was born and Matt looked like a monster. And um, like he became the symbol of this past pain, I guess, just like, why does that happen in marriages? And um, like, I've met many women straight, however, and, and men, and, and they reach this point in their marriage where something just comes up, just resurfaces and it wreaks havoc. And as it did on, on my marriage and really, like I said, my trauma paired up with my sexual orientation. And I was like, I just need to leave. So why does this happen? And, and how can we engage this without just like drowning in this swamp of confusion? Oh, Lori, I, I would rather now start asking you how you engaged. But <laughs> I, to, to be uh, responsible to your question, what I'd say is um, we don't know why, like decades later, yeah. memories yeah. surface. We really don't comprehend how that actually happens, but we have so much data, whether you call it repression, suppression, uh, you know, hidden memories. I mean, there was a study done with absolutely well-documented sexual abuse. They went to a hospital. The hospital took rape kits and, and had all the information. 68% of the women who were later, 20 years later, asked about that event said they never were abused. Hmm. So we, we just have enough data to be able to come back and go, look, we don't want to deal with the volatility of the heartache and shame uh, that, that resides. Uh, and so whether we knew the event, but don't actually give it significance with regard to how it affected us, or we don't know of the event, literally our memory has largely erased it, uh, all I can say is that somehow in about the mid-30s, it seems to be, especially with children, meaning mm -hmm. for women, as they begin to have children and have a regard for wanting to protect and care for their children, all of a sudden, the absence of care and protection in their family of origin the issues of the endangerment of their own children in such a deeply fallen world. And then just this other third X factor that we really don't know. But to say, often mid-30s seems to be where triggers occur. And all of a sudden, literally, you turn a corner and there is a monster, as you described. And yeah. then here's the complication. Rather than face the unaddressed memories even if you have a portion of it, you still have much that you've not engaged. It is easier to scapegoat. And I think that phenomena of scapegoating is a um, deep phenomena for all humanity, not just mm -hmm. those who've been abused. But we want to find a face that actually serves to embody all the unaddressed 
stuff inside of us. Yeah. Uh, and and who better than you know somebody who has bad breath, farts, and <laughs> and doesn't know that much about argyle socks. <laughs> Heyo! <laughs> wow, sick burn. <laughs> it's true, and it, but it's it, I don't know. It's so hard because even in hearing myself like talk about it again, and I was just writing some pieces of this story right before recording. It's so it's hard to articulate because, as you're saying, the parts of our brain that shut down because of trauma that the broca part of our brain that just shuts down during trauma but it's hard to articulate even in that moment because all you want to do is push eject you you don't even yes. know how to rationalize with yourself like this i love this, <laughs> this stinky guy <laughs> like i kept like staring at him and i was like maybe if he cries and like if i feel enough of his pain like this is just gonna make my heart really melt and i'll be all better but I just wanted to leave. Like everything about me was like, I am all done. And I already, you know, I wasn't naturally attracted to men anyway. So why am I in this marriage? So in that moment, I, and I'm not the only one who's felt that because many of you have reached out. What do we do in that moment, Dan? Like where it just feels like you're re-traumatized, you're screaming, you've tried all the tools in your toolbox. Cause that's what I did. I was like, I've already processed other trauma in my life. Like I, I tried every tool. What do we do to keep us from pushing escape? Well, it's it's like a very, very dangerous road on a very high mountain uh, scape. And you've you got to have guardrails. Yeah. You know, at one level, the guardrail is in being triggered, in whatever the trigger is, to, in one sense, indulge, flight, fight, or yes. freeze. That's yes. what we're going to do. Right. We're going to do some portion of that. But to indulge it as if it is the only escape process or resolution process is actually giving trauma more trauma and therefore you know, it's multiplicative, if not exponential. Right. So I think at one level to be when I'm triggered, and I still get triggered, my abuse still shows itself after all the work I've done, and I've done a lot of work. But in that sense, is there generosity? Is there ability to welcome, welcome the trigger, welcome the unfaced memories, actually with a sense of intrigue, openness, of course, horror and fear, but on the other hand, more of a welcome. I think that's one of the tasks with the unfaced, unnamed realities that are in every human being. Do we have a stance of welcome? Mm -hmm. uh, if not, then we're going to do all the structures we've used before, eject, fight, just shut down. And it's best just to be able to say, I know those part processes. I'm not much of a fleer. I'm, I'm more of a bar fighter. So, you know, <laughs> to be able to go, um, I'm not going to escape. I'm going to take my wife on and tell her what a wretched human being she is. Yeah. Well, that's where my trigger, when related not only to the interplay current, but also to structures that have to do with my family of origin, my borderline mother, uh, my avoidant father, my past. You know, in other words, we are such complex, beautiful beings. It's already said in one Psalm 139, if we can just, in one sense, slow everything down. But on the other hand, uh, to allow ourselves to say, I'm a mess and this is not going to get resolved with a Bible verse or one prayer uh, or one confession to a friend. This is going to require a journey, uh, an, an effort to do the 
500 mile trip. So that means I'm going to be talking to a good therapist. I'm going to be talking in a good group. Uh, I'm going to be engaging, reading, thinking, because in some sense, I'm the journey. I'm the actual continent the journey is about to discover, which means I need as much data about myself and about the human heart that I can ascertain to begin that process of dealing with, just as you said, Broca's area. If people don't know what Broca's area is, uh, it's on our left frontal lobe. It's what manages our ability to have language, and therefore, it actually is our ability to hold memory. When we're in trauma, that begins to literally go offline. But so do a lot of other parts, our, our hippocampus. Now, does everyone need to know something of the nature of the limbic system to be able to make sense of what they're going through? And this is carefully, carefully said. No, not entirely. But the more harm you've endured, the more you need clarity about the nature of what's happening underneath the hood, yeah. rather than react or shut down. And those are the two sides to say, make sure on that dangerous mountain road, you don't go over one end or the other, but you stay at least in the middle until you can begin to get to more, um, more contours that feel safer. So this is just now Lori's just going to go through therapy. Just kidding. But a little bit. I really appreciate what you said, Dan. And Matt has actually quoted you to me recently, because as much as I have been able to do um, that 500 mile journey of my own soul again with this ver this trauma round, uh, I can still get triggered, too. So I really appreciate how you said that. And, and even the grace, I'm just hearing kindness toward yourself instead of being like, fight or flight, I've got to exit. When you still get triggered, Dan, what do you do? Well, uh, Becky and I have worked a lot on, on our marriage because she has a history of abuse. I have a history of abuse. Yeah. Uh, she is more of a go away person. Mm -hmm. I'm more against. Uh, and our, our, our conflicts, uh, I mean, like we took a long walk today and at one point uh, we were just laughing uh, mm -hmm. and and in the context of the laughing she had i mean she's uh, i'm an aging man she's an aging woman and she was starting to laugh and i could tell that she was moving toward the possibility of what we'll call a y urinal disenfranchisement uh, <laughs> and and I, and I, I, I think those are funny moments. So I was trying to make her laugh more. And, and she just literally, instead of just like bending over, she just stood up and she just started yelling. And it was like, what? Mm. What? I mean, these kind of moments actually happen quite often. Why now? Mm. Well, the rest of the walk was trying for both of us to unpack what seemed to be a playful moment, she experienced as really shaming. Yeah. And again, we've had moments like that where uh, it was hilarious for both of us. So what happened for the turn? I'm not clear yet, but we got, we got to a point of being able to hold one another as we walk back to say, you know, we, all our efforts to understand this at the moment aren't going anywhere well. But can we just submit this to one another, that there's grief, there's still honor? The next time it happens, I'll probably still try to, well, I'll just leave it at that. Um, but... <laughs> Our invitation 
is can we be curious together, hold one another, not give in to shame, and nobody can have a contempt-free marriage. But you can at least commit yourself to not letting contempt against yourself or against the other win in a way in which you return to to the past structures uh, that have worked in the past. And for us, that's allowed us to get to uh, abusive encounters I had with my mother. Uh, I began to name that eight or nine years ago. Well, The Wounded Heart doesn't have any of that in it. Uh, The newer book that I wrote called Healing the Wounded Heart, uh, I deal with some of the reality of abuse with my mother that I didn't even have data about uh, when I wrote the book back in 1988. So there is a progression, a movement, and the surprise and paradox of maturity is the more we grow, the more we're aware of how much we need to be forgiven and held really in honor and delight. So precious. And I just love the gentleness with which you talk about yourself and even your response and the gentleness you talk about with her. And I'm I'm just seeing, okay, how can we implement that even further in our marriage and how I view myself and how I view those those triggering moments. Dan, just yeah. last question for you. Just if someone's listening and they're, uh, I don't know, something's stirring that they're remembering something or they're like, oh man, I've never prom- like processed that first encounter with pornography or man, was that... What would you say to them as far as perhaps a step they could take? Well, I think one of the first things that we need to do is be able to say to another human being, I've been sexually harmed. Uh, I, I have heartache with regard or shame with regard to something about my sexuality. And and that ability to speak it to another human being outs us. It puts us in a position where we're actually asking for help. Uh, And maybe the person we've spoken to isn't uh, well-versed, well-trained, but at least they can invite us to say, thank you. Thank you for sharing And I will pray, but I'll also be asking of you, will you go the next step? Will you take the next step to say, could we read a book together? Could we listen to podcasts together? Could we... um, could we find a really good therapist for you uh, in your area so that we can begin, we, you, uh, you and me as friends, but you can begin that process uh, of, of reclaiming and restoring and reconciling more parts of your own heart, more parts of who you are with the living God, and ultimately more of who you are with me and others. When that begins to be the case, I'm telling you, people move. Mm-hmm. So, so good. Dan, just thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, Lori, Matt, Steve, uh, an honor and delight. I, I would love to be back whenever you want. All right, guys, this is Lori again in the present day. What'd you think of the episode? We'd love to hear from you. You can find me on the socials, Lori Krieg, or you can find all of what we offer at LoriKrieg.com. And as always, we really wanted to beef up our show notes this season, this summer 2021 season. Uh, so if you want to hear more related topics to trauma, to find Allender's book, to find our book on um, that where we talk about how even some of his work affected our hearts mm-hmm. in real time when we were recording this. Uh, We will link that in the episode show notes. Yeah, guys, thank you so much for joining us today for this heavy topic. Um, Next week, we're really looking forward to talking with Heather Scriba. 
and talking about some of her journey um, about being trans, going through the process of transitioning, and then detransitioning. Yeah, that's an amazing conversation just about how the church really loved her well. So for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast, guys, we'll see you next week.